All right. If you know anything about me, I'm a very huge fan of entertainment, perhaps to a fault. I love TV series, sitcoms, uh, action series. It doesn't really matter what it is. Uh, I love television. I love documentaries. I love sports. And many times, I don't know if you've been there, but I've been there here a lot. Many times when you're watching a TV show or perhaps you're at a movie and you start to realize that there is no way possible that they are going to wrap up all of these storylines by the end of this show. You know, because we know that if a show is a 30-minute time slot or an hour time slot, and you're watching that show or you're watching that movie or whatever it might be, you're watching this and you know that there is just absolutely no way with this five minutes remaining, that they're going to tie in all of these different threads and all of these different arcs and all of these different things going on in the time that they have left. All of these loose strings can no way be taken care of in this short time span left. And that's when you get the dreaded message at the end of the TV show. Have you ever seen it? To be continued. To be continued. And as a fan of the show, you know, back for streaming, this was the worst news ever, right? Because you had to wait a whole week or a couple of weeks, or if it was a movie, you'd have to wait a couple of years to figure out how all of those loose strings would come together and be completed. I, I, I think immediately about Back to the Future, right? If you're a fan of Back to the Future, Doc Brown and, and Marty, they go back in time, and, and Marty, he, he gets all the way back after the lightning strike hits the clock tower, and he's back in 1985, but realizes he's got to go back to 1956, and he, there's Doc Brown, he's celebrating, and there's Marty all over again. And there on the screen, to be continued. We've all seen this message, to be continued, and this phrase to be continued, is always, almost always, reserved for the most dramatic, the most uh, climactic part, the biggest cliffhanger. And it's almost always intended to evoke this reaction out of the, 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 the watchers, the, the viewers of the TV show, to ensure, if it's a TV show coming on on a weekly basis, it's almost to ensure that you're going to get that viewer again next week so that they can tune in and be, play a part in this TV show. That's what the To Be Continued line does, that they will continue this story or this drama or this action that you have been enthralled by. You have this promise that it will be concluded in a future installment. Even though they may have to wait for this satisfaction as you watch this show, you have to wait for the satisfaction to have it fulfilled it provides hope in whoever the viewer is that everything is going to get ironed out later. You can breathe a sigh of relief. You don't have to worry. They, they've got this handled. Your favorite TV show, however much investment you have in it, it's going to be okay. This phrase, to be continued, is not only supposed to mean something to the viewer. Whenever this phrase appears, it's an admission on behalf of the writers and the directors and the producers of whatever the show is that this storyline must be further investigated. They are signaling to the audience that they know there is more to the story to be told. When we look at history, I think sometimes we make a crucial mistake. I think when we look back at history, I think we make a crucial mistake when we forget that history is something that is still being made. We look at history as if it's something that took place years and years ago and, and yesteryear, and, and we start to make this big mistake when we look at the present and the, and the past and the present in two different separate entities. Because the truth is, and we all know it, that the past dictates what the future will be. Without the past, there is no present. Without the past, there is no future. It's just like this road that you see up there on the screen. Of course, we all want to see what is down the road, but 
there was no way we could get down the road if we have not already gone to the road behind us up to that point. So when we think about the past, we have to realize that without, without the heroes of the past and the figures of the past, there's no way we could be here in the present. And of course, also, without the mistakes that were made in the past, there would be no success or achievements made in the future or in the present. Without those mistakes, how could we possibly achieve anything in the present? And also, without the triumphs of the past, where would we be today? And so we see that the past and the present obviously go hand in hand, and they cannot exist without each other. But when we want to solely focus on the present and refuse to go back and learn from the past, someone once wisely said, we're doomed to repeat the past. We're doomed to repeat the mistakes that were made in the past. Life on earth is one big to be continued. The title for our class is to be continued. This quarter we're going to, or the next couple quarters, we're going to be diving into our past as the church. Diving into the past that is behind us to see how we arrived in the place that we find ourselves tonight. We're going to be journeying back all the way to the Roman Empire, looking at how the Roman Empire influenced Christianity and how that led into the Reformation with Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and others. We're going to be looking at how that then led to the restoration movement that we've heard about here in the church for many years. These pioneers that went throughout the regions preaching the truth of restoration. We're going to be looking at all of these different points and moments in our history to see how we got to the place we are here tonight at Buford Church of Christ. We're going to be discovering all that had to be done and, and, and all that had to be discovered, all that had to be debated, all that had to be sacrificed by these people who came before us to see how we got to where we are tonight. You know, if you grew up in the Church of Christ, it's likely that you've heard phrases like these. We speak where the Bible speaks, but we're silent where the Bible's silent. Maybe you've heard statements like, we call Bible things by Bible names and do Bible things in Bible ways. You heard that? These are powerful statements. These are, these are true statements, I believe, and they believed, and I think we should believe together when it comes to how we operate in our lives in Christianity. These are calls for us to lay aside every opinion, every bias, every feeling that we might have about the text or about Christianity or about God's will, to lay all of that aside, to lay aside all of the tradition, to lay aside denominational practices, to lay aside every personal bias that we might have or desire that we might have, to devote it solely to what God would have us to do. However, when you hear these statements throughout your life, throughout your study, throughout all these Bible studies or, or, or sermons throughout your life, have they just become a cliche for you? The idea of, of speaking where the Bible speaks, being silent where the Bible is silent, is that just a cliche in your life? Is that just something that you hear, a statement that you hear, and you're like, uh-huh, mm -hmm, yeah, heard that one before. Due to their repetition, have they lost the power that they once had? Do we even know exactly what is being said by these statements and these thoughts? Have you ever stopped to think, are these statements scriptural? Are these God-honoring thoughts and, and focuses that we should have, do we just take this thought for granted? Are these just statements that we quote or principles that we live by. Where do these thoughts originate? You see, a lot of times we get so used to things being the way that they are that we forget to ask why. 
they are that way. We forget to examine why things are the way they are in our life. You know, with the denominations out there, there's however many denominations in the United States, in Christianity in, 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 as a whole, there are so many different denominations. Have you taken the time to ask yourself why we think we are any better than them? Have you taken the time to, to investigate, to ask yourself for yourself what makes us who we are tonight? With all the denominations out there, how can we be sure that we are the ones who ironed everything out correctly? How can we be sure, with, unless we investigate our past, how can we be sure? if we don't seek out our own salvation with fear and trembling, the Bible says. If we just simply take everything for granted, if we don't seek our own salvation, if each of us individually do not take the time to go back to God's Word and, and, and prove it to ourselves what we believe and why we believe it, then we're no better than anyone else practicing false doctrine. If we're simply going through life and, and, and going through the motions and, and living our lives simply just off of this is what Mama always said. This is what Daddy always said. This is what Grandpa always said. So that's, that's where I'm at. That's exactly how those people in those denominations got to the point that they're at. When we stop asking the question, why do we do the things that we do? we're no better than the people out in the denominational world. Because if we cannot defend our worship and, and our practices and our faith, what separates us from anyone else in the world? And what's to keep us from practicing false doctrine ourselves? There are a few passages that throughout this quarter I want us to all keep in mind of, of, of why we are talking about this together. There's a few passages that as, as we go back to the Bible and we go back into history and we get in that time machine and we go back, these passages have got to be the forefront, the fulcrum, the, the foundation of our study. Because I don't want to, to study just the restoration movement and to hear just what Thomas Campbell said and what Alexander Campbell said and I don't want to just study what Barton Stone said and, and Walter Scott and John Raccoon Smith and J.W. McGarvey and Moses E. Lard and, and all these people, David Lipscomb. I don't want to just go back and take what these men said and just live my life based off of what a bunch of men said. And the truth is, none of those men would want you to. None of those men I just mentioned would want you to just take them at their word full stop, not ask any questions. Those men themselves would want each of us tonight to investigate it for ourselves. They would want us to scour through the Scriptures for ourselves and seek our own salvation the same way they did. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, of course, is very important when we think about our faith. And it was very important to these restoration leaders themselves when Peter says, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. ESV says gentleness and respect. Always be ready. Always be ready to give a defense. Can you say that you can do that? Can you say that, that, that if it came down to it, asking questions or answering questions at work or everyday life that if someone asks you why we are the way we are could, could you do it? Could you be able to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason? What's the reason you do it that way? Could you do it? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21 it says test all things hold fast to what is good. You see the problem with the world around us is they haven't tested all these things. 
They haven't tested the doctrine against the Word of God. They haven't tested the traditions of men or the creeds of men against the Word of God. They haven't tested it. They've held on to the wrong thing. Are we guilty of that? How do you know if we are or not if we're not looking to the Word of God? If, if we're not looking back to see where we came from? 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. Have you tested the spirit? Have you tested the words of, of the, the men that have been preaching and teaching from this pulpit and from this podium and all these different gears? Have you tested? Have you, have you put it to the test? This is the, this is the key, by the way. Have you put it to the test of whether it is from God or whether it is just a man? You see, because that's how we got to the point of the Reformation. That's how we got to the point of the Restoration. Because men and women of faith stopped testing whether things were of God or whether they were of man. We all know about the Berean Christians in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 10 says, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. When was the last time you, you, you looked at what we do in worship, in our everyday life, in the decision-making that we have, and we asked ourselves, is this what is acceptable in the sight of the Lord? Because that's all that matters. You see, the world around us for thousands of years now have, have looked to what is acceptable in their own eyes. And that's where we got to the point we are today. So for the next two quarters, to, in, this, in this room, we're going to be examining all these different passages we just read. Some of the core values that we hold to most. Some of these statements like, like we speak where the Bible speaks and, and we're silent where the Bible is silent and we're going to be asking ourselves whether we can give a defense for what we believe. Some of these core values, can I defend it? As a group, we're going to be testing all things. We're going to test whether what we have heard and practiced are of God or are of man. We're going to be searching the Scriptures to see if what we believe is actually so. We're going to be looking and finding out what is actually acceptable to the Lord. And the beauty of it is we're going to be trying, attempting to do it alongside of those who took that same journey 200 years ago. 200, 300, 400 500 years ago, as those men and women of faith stepped out of all of these traditions, all of these things that they had heard, all of these things that they were told and, and preached and taught, they said, but that's not in there. That's not in the Word of God. And they had the courage to stand up for restoration. Before we get into the class, I just want to let everyone understand what, what our objective is. These are our objectives for this quarter, for the next couple of quarters. Our, our, our learning objectives and goals for this class is we're going to be engaging, actively engaging in all the history and the ideas and the writings and the principles and obviously the key figures in the restoration movement. We're going to be under better understanding get a better understanding of the importance of the restoration plea to go back to God's Word. Why does that matter? We're going to try to provide a greater appreciation for restoration theology in and of itself. We're going to challenge why we believe what we believe today. We're going to apply the lessons from the restoration into our current context and realize that the restoration is not we're going to have six phases to our study. Within each phase, there's going to be some uh, two or three, four lessons, whatever it might be. But we're going to have an introduction, a foundation, a formation, an instruction, a division, a continuation as we go throughout this study. Before our time machine 
goes back in time. Before we start that endeavor, before we go back to the history, before we go back to any of this, I got a question. Does this matter? Rhetorical. Does this matter? Does going back and, and looking at the past even matter? You know, I think there's a lot of us here, uh, maybe my generation, that, that don't care about the past. I don't care about what happened 200 years ago. I care about what's happening tonight. There's some credence to that thought, I guess. Does it matter that we go back to the past and, and examine what happened before us? Does it matter? Is it even worth the time to pose the question? Does God care about this? Does God Himself care about what Alexander Campbell did or, or what Thomas Campbell or Barton W. Stone? Does, he, does God care about this at all? Is the church something that as time goes on that we can alter to our own wishes? To whatever we think and deem is best? Can we change it to our own will based on what we wish it to look like? Is there any Scripture that shows us this idea of restoration? If we're going to speak where the Bible speaks, be silent where the Bible is silent. Well, where does the Bible that we need to have restoration. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Are there examples from God's people where they strayed from the guidelines and were called back to return to the fundamentals of the faith? Can religious tradition be sincere and sincerely wrong at the same time? You see, there's a lot of people that are very sincere about what they believe. I don't know if you've talked to people. Everyone I've ever talked to is very sincere about what they believe. They believe it with all their heart, same as I do. You can be sincere and sincerely wrong at the same time. Boy, I've been there. Does this matter, what we are studying tonight? We're going to open up to God's Word and remind ourselves of a few examples that I think we can learn for a biblical basis. We have a biblical basis of the idea of restoration. As we look to, to better understand the importance of restoration theology as a whole, the, the theology of restoration, that's where it has to start tonight. And I just want to open up by saying, I'm not Scott Hart. I'm related to him but I don't have the wealth of knowledge that Scott has on this matter. I don't have the, the years of, of study. I haven't visited a single grave. Now, he's visited thousands of graves. Okay, We all remember Scott and him teaching on this. I did sit at his feet. I went to college and I had an undergraduate class on restoration theology. I had a graduate class on restoration movement as well. But I'm not Scott Hart, and I'm not Jim Whitmire. Jim has done a lot of study on this, and, and many of us in this room have studied this. Bob Canolte, I'm not, I've not studied it for the amount of years that many have before me. But if you'll bear with me this next couple of quarters, I think we're going to learn a lot. As we start tonight by traveling back to the time of the Exodus, where Moses warns the children of Israel that they are going to fall away. That they are going to leave the law of God and start to serve enemy nations. Moses prophesies that, that, he, that they will completely be unrecognizable in their faith, in their worship, in their practices. But if they, if they seek God, if they seek God and the truth of His will, God will always take them back. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Beginning in verse 26. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 26. It says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon 
utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Hot start there, Moses. Let's read it again. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Anybody signing up to go across that Jordan? Moses says, you're going to perish from the land which you cross over to possess. He says, you will not long prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and, and you will be left few in number among the nations, where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him. If you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey His voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, He will not forsake you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which He swore to them. Man, it's obvious that Moses was endued with the power of the Holy Spirit when he wrote this. Because that is exactly what we see take place in the centuries to follow, in, in, in the generations to follow. Moses clearly speaks exactly an accurate description of what is going to take place in the coming generations of Israelites. Because as soon as Moses says that, sure enough, they get into the land of promise, the land of Canaan, and it's not long after that that they start to worship idols. That they willingly leave the law of God and want to be like the other nations around them. Isn't that the whole reason we got kings? We want to be like everyone else around us. Samuel, we don't want to have to talk to you and then you talk to God. We want to talk to a king. We want to talk, be like everyone around us, surrounding us. And God allows them to make those mistakes. But isn't it amazing that before they even set foot in the promised land, Moses tells them exactly what's going to happen. Moses tells them, you're going to be utterly destroyed. You're going to be dispersed. You're going to be scattered out in these enemy nations because you have assimilated to their way of life, their way of worship, their way of faith. You know, if it weren't so incredibly sad, how many times the Israelites went back and forth in their faith, it would be comical. You know, if you weren't a, a believer, if you weren't a follower of God and you didn't understand how serious our God is and His wrath is, you might laugh as you read the Israelites, as you read the Judges. Because this same group of people make the same old mistake over and over and over throughout their history. This is what we see in the book of Judges, is it not? In the book of Judges, we see God establishes this judge to rule over the people. They are faithful for a time. And then it's not long after that that they start to serve enemy nations, that they start to serve in, uh, pagan gods, that they... Ha start losing their lives to the Philistines and other nations around them. And what do they do? They call out to God, God, save us, redeem us, forgive us. What does He do? Every time. As they repent, we see the cycle happen over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. This is an idea of restoration. Over and over again, we see the people of Israel going through a restoration process. Restoration theology. We have gone off the way that we were on. We have gone, we're off the rails. We're off track from what God has told us to do. So we're going to cry out to God. And every time, just like Moses says, God takes them back. Is this not what we see in the book of Kings? Even in the time of kings, when the kingdoms were split in half and they refused to follow God. In the time of the prophets and captivity, we can see that the nation brought on the foreign gods and the foreign practices and the paganism to the point that they were unrecognizable. Just as Moses said in this passage, Deuteronomy 4. 
every single time that they were willing to search for God with all of their heart, all of their soul, just like Moses said, God was there. He was there to be found, and He took them back. Notice as we go back to the text, just look at it again. Moses wasn't saying that they had already left God. That these people had already left God and left the practices and left the truth and left the law. He, he isn't insinuating that they've already done it. He's forecasting and prophesying that they will do it. And that's exactly what we see them do. And when they do, whenever they do leave God, the only thing that can bring them back is restoration. The only thing that they can do to get God back is to restore the worship, restore the faith, restore the commitment, and restore the love that their obedience once had. All they had to do to restore that relationship, the passage tells us, is to seek the Lord to turn to the Lord, to obey the Lord. And once they did that, promises that He would be their God again, that He would not forsake them or destroy them, and He would remember the promise that He made to their fathers. We see this cycle happen over and over throughout the Old Testament. This need for restoration. Here's an example of such when we look at the time of, of the kings of Judah. One of the kings of Judah, we know, uh, is, is Hezekiah. We know the story of Hezekiah. We're going to look at it. Hezekiah, when after many generations and, and many different uh, kings went before him, time after time, way over here, at the time of Jeroboam, it was all good. Jeroboam starts to make high places. He starts to worship other gods. And then the king after him starts to worship other gods and build more high places and build more idols and get further and further and further and further away from where they once were. That's what we see in the time of the kings. And we see Hezekiah, after all of these evil and, and blasphemous kings that went before him, Hezekiah comes in and restores the kingdom to its former faithfulness. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 3. 2 Kings 18, verse 3. It starts talking about Hezekiah. It says, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. According to all that his father David had done, he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it, and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him, and he prospered wherever he went. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria, and did not serve him. I can't tell you how much of a lightning in the bottle example Hezekiah was when compared to all those other kings of Judah and kings of Israel. Hezekiah comes and he realizes just how off the rails everything was. He looks at the situation, he scopes out the, the faith and, and the commitment and the love for the Lord and all of the situation around him, and he goes, no, this is awful. We're going back. We're going back to where we started. We're going back to where God used to be with us. And he starts to take these actions. Obviously, God's people had come a long, long way away from what God had intended. God's people were ensconced in idolatry everywhere around them. 
They were worshiping idols that were constructed by men's hands, just like Moses prophesied. Remember when he said they will start to worship wood which cannot see and hear and, and, and speak and what, what he said in Deuteronomy 4. This is exactly what the Israelites were doing. Look at the actions that Hezekiah did. Look at the action verbs that we see Hezekiah do to restore the kingdom and all that it took. Think about all that it took for Hezekiah to restore the kingdom back to what it was. It says he, the text says that he did what was right. He removed. He broke. He cut down. He broke again the second time. He trusted, he held fast, he did not depart, he kept, and he... There's ten things that Hezekiah did, these action verbs. Whenever we think about restoration, restoration takes action. Restoration takes action. It takes actual steps and is a real process that has to take place. Hezekiah was fully and wholly devoted to this active restoration of the kingdom. And because of that, what does the text say? What does the text say about Hezekiah? It says that the Lord was with him wherever he went and whatever he did. When Hezekiah sought the Lord with all of his heart and all of his soul, just like Moses said in Deuteronomy 4, Hezekiah found the Lord and found his will. Notice that the, the kingdom wasn't restored after he removed the high places. Right? Hezekiah goes and he removes the high places. It's not restored yet. It's not restored after he breaks. After he cuts down. After he breaks. The only time the kingdom was restored was after Hezekiah did all of the steps necessary to restore the kingdom. Hezekiah, it, it wasn't done. It wasn't completed. It was to be continued. You know what's sad though? What's sad is after all those things that Hezekiah did, after all the ten things that we see in that text that Hezekiah did, guess what happens? When the next king comes. The next king comes in and... and we see Manasseh. After Manasseh, oh, sorry, let me look at this. Manasseh, yes, Manasseh reigned in Judah right after Hezekiah. And he undid all of that wonderful restoration that had been accomplished. Look at 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21, beginning in verse 2. Remember, before we read, all those things that we just talked about, all those actions that Hezekiah had to take all of that hard work and dedication and devotion to restoration. And then, boom. Manasseh. Verse 2, 2 Kings chapter 21. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal, and made a wooden image, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also, he made his sons pass through fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Man, Manasseh, what are you doing? What are you doing with the kingdom? All the work that went into Hezekiah's reign as king, gone in a single generation. Everything... Here we have Hezekiah breaking down the high places. Here we have Manasseh building them up. Here we have Hezekiah breaking the wooden image. Here we have Manasseh building another one. He went even further. He built altars into the house of the Lord itself where only God's name was supposed to be. 
Then we see he's making his sons do witchcraft and soothsaying and walking through fire and all this weird stuff. You know, we look at that text and we go, man, where do they get that? Where do you get that in the law of Moses? Where, where do you get handling snakes? Where do you get instruments? Where do you get anything that the denominational world does? It's just as crazy as walking through fire and doing soothsaying. Doing witchcraft. And when that happens, when things get off the rails, it's time for some restoration. After Manasseh, we see that his son Ammon became king. He becomes king and he does evil just like his father. He was so evil that his own men conspired against him and killed him. And they were forced to put a little eight-year-old boy into the kingdom. A little eight-year-old boy becomes king of Judah. An eight-year-old boy who goes on to restore the kingdom just like his great-grandfather Hezekiah had done. An eight-year-old boy named Josiah. Josiah, who, when the book of the law was found, it had been lost for generations. When he finds the book of the law, he immediately begins to restore their worship, restore their practices, restore the faith that they had once had back to what the will of God was. 2 Kings chapter 23 is just, in my opinion, one of the greatest chapters in all the Old Testament especially in the thought of restoration. Because in 2 Kings chapter 23, we see every sing- the whole chapter is devoted to what Josiah had to do to restore the kingdom back to the will of God. Line by line, piece by piece, action by action, Josiah restores and rehabilitates the kingdom back to its former faithfulness. I wish we had the time to look at the whole text in its entirety, but look what it says in verse 25. It says about Josiah, Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind, according to the law of Moses. Nor after him did any arise like him. Remember what Moses said? That if you seek the Lord with all of your heart and all of your soul, the Lord will take you back. Is that not what we see with Josiah? He sought after the Lord with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his heart, and the Lord took him back. Took the nation of Israel back. Restoration, by the way, is not just an Old Testament principle. The theology of restoration, the, the need to restore, is not just something we see in the Old Testament. Now, when we look at the Old Testament, we've got to realize that these stories, a lot of times, especially in the time of the judges, take place decades, decades and hundreds of years at a time, right? So maybe it's understandable that things get a little bit off the rails after a few hundred years, Maybe. There's no excuse. You know what the New Testament teaches us? The New Testament teaches us that apostasy is one generation away. The full-on acceptance of false teaching, false teachers, forgetting what you had once done is a but it's but a generation away. And we looked at that in our study of the seven churches that Jesus writes to in the book of Revelation. Remember in Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus is writing to the church in Ephesus, what does He say? In verse 4 He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. 
unless you repent. We did a roundtable on that a few weeks ago. Powerful message. But we see that the church was the church in Ephesus was in such a desperate need of restoration. They had completely left their first love. They had forgotten from whence they came. Jesus says, remember from where you have fallen. Over here, do you not remember the faith that you had when Timothy and Paul were with you? Do you not remember the, the dedication to love and good works, to faith, to hope, to love that you once had? Remember! Man, what a passionate plea from Jesus Himself. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works again. He tells them they needed to remember their first love. They needed to repent. They needed to do the first works. Because whatever the current works that they were engaged in at that time was nowhere close to what the original faithfulness that had once been seen in them. You know, Jesus doesn't make it sound like they can just do whatever they please, does He? And I think the world operates with this idea that Jesus died for the church, gave His life for it, left the throne room of heaven to come down to earth to establish a church, His own body, His bride. We can do whatever we want with it. He tells us to do this. Nah. That was for back then. God didn't take into account what 21st century religion looks like. We can do this. God didn't take into account all of the empowerment that we see women have. So it makes no sense that women cannot preach, teach. Women cannot do anything a man can do. So we're going to let them do whatever they want to do. God didn't take into account all of the amazing technology that we would have. All of the amazing instruments that we would have. God didn't take into account how, how much it would take to heat a full baptistry, so we're just going to sprinkle some water on some folks. Apostasy is a generation away when we forget to look to the Word of God. Jesus in no way in Revelation makes it seem like we can do whatever in the world we want with His church. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He tells them, He commands them to return, to restore, to repent, to remember from where they had fallen. And that if they refused, He was going to take away their lampstand. He was going to take away their right to even be called Christians. Their right to be even called His church. He was going to take it away from them. You know what's amazing about our God as, as we start to think about the close of this lesson tonight? Our, it's amazing about it. He doesn't change. Our God does not change. In every dispensation of man, when things get off the rails, God expects the same things. He expects us to stop and make it right. You know, God has given us all the guidelines that we could possibly need. He's given us this pattern to follow, this, this blueprint to live by. And the world has rejected it. Amazingly enough, God still gives us the chance for restoration anyway. And in each dispensation, the process was the same as Moses outlined. If we seek the Lord, turn to the Lord, obey the Lord with all of our heart and with all of our soul, 
he'll take us back. It was the same process then, and it's the same process now tonight. If we would just follow the pattern that has been revealed to us. When we think about the restoration plea tonight, as we kick off this study of to be continued, I hope you realize that the restoration plea didn't start in the 19th century with a guy named Campbell and a guy named Stone. I hope you realize that the idea of restoration and the theology of restoration didn't begin with a couple of guys in a wagon. Restoration theology is the call to restore what God had intended. And all throughout the text of Scripture we can see it. It is an expectation that God has given us that when things get misaligned in the way that we worship, in the way that we practice our faith, or in the way that we understand Scripture, it is God's expectation that we go through a restoration process. But when we think about that restoration process, the question is, where, what are we restoring it to? Where is the destination of our restoration? To find the answer to that, it's to be continued. Let's end it with a word of prayer. Our dear, most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the day that you bless us with again to come together and to study a portion of your word, to think about the biblical thesis that we have for restoration theology. To look back at these examples in Hezekiah and Josiah and the book of Revelation and the period of the judges and the kings and to realize that when things get out of hand, you have given us a process to come back from you, to you. That if we will love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and seek you with all of our heart and all of our soul, that we will be able to find you. Lord, we thank you for this class. We pray that uh, we can look back to our past and better understand where we're going in the future. To understand the restoration plea, the restoration theology that we see in your word. Forgive us when we fail you. Forgive us when we come up short and when we get off, off the rails. Thank you for Jesus who gives us the chance to have that forgiveness. His name.